I'm going to talk about the other side, and no, it's not heaven. Somebody asked me if the sermon was about heaven. No, because you're going to encounter Satan on this one. Uh Uh-oh, it's right. Chapter 5 of Mark, the stranger within, is talking about the other side. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High, swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of this area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him Jesus did not let him. He said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Well, well, well. I've had people come to me before and say that Jesus never spoke to Gentiles. Jesus' ministry was not to the Gentile nation. I say to you just the opposite. It absolutely was to the Gentile nation as well as to the Jews. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. You can imagine the shock and the amazement at the Jews, the Jewish disciples, the apostles who were in the boat with Jesus. They had just had all this fantastic revival type experience. Jesus had taught the Word of God, He had healed, He had worked with people. The crowds were humongous in that area. So Jesus pushed off in the boat and said to them, let's go to the other side. The other side? Those of you that have been in Israel know the other side of the Sea of Galilee is a region that the Jews don't frequent. They, in that Jesus' time, they never went. In fact, they felt that that's exactly where Satan lived. 
You see, the other side of the Sea of Galilee was the region where the seven nations of Canaan settled there. There were the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations of Canaan. Remember that. Log that in your mental bank because there's another sermon coming up in a few weeks that's going to come back to that. Seven nations of Canaan lodged there. Now, in those nations called the Decapolis, which was the League of Ten Cities, it was filled with pagan temples that exalted the violence or the sexual expression or the greed of their own particular culture. It was everything in the world that Israel was not. And so that's why they believe that that's where Satan lived. The pig was considered the most unclean animal in all of Israel. And yet in this area of Gerasenes, it was regarded as sacred and offered as a sacrifice to their pagan gods. Well, the Jews believed, as a result, Satan lived there. So you can imagine how shocked they were when Jesus got in the boat and said, let's go to the other side. Now tonight we'll talk about the trip to the other side where they encountered the storm. But as they are coming through the storm, they get to this other side. Now, the Decapolis, or the League of Ten Cities, was a center of Roman power in the time of Jesus. It housed a legion of some 6,000 soldiers, which is what a legion comprised of. It was the symbol of a Roman legion. Actually, folks, was a boar's head. So, you're starting to see what Jesus and the disciples were in encountering there. So now you can imagine they didn't want to go to the other side. They've just come through the the storm of their lives and now they're about to come on shore of this area they felt was inhabited by Satan and his minions. And look at what it says. There was this man that came. They didn't have the crowd meet Jesus. They were met by this man possessed by a demon. That's a far cry different from what they just came from on the other side of Galilee in their region. And so, here was this demon-possessed man, crazed, completely nude, without clothing, living in the tombs, meeting Jesus. And the Bible says no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. To the youth, I usually talk about the Incredible Hulk. They identify with that. Oh, did he turn green? No. Didn't have to. But there he was, breaking all the binds on his hands and feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. The first sign of cutting in those days. Those of you that have children or grandchildren that are cutters understand that this is a serious uh, emotional, psychological issue today. He was a cutter. He cried out. Well, there's four things that I want you to see uh, today in this isolation. 
He was trying to live apart from God. Isolation will do that to you. The tombs were obviously isolated from the city. He was isolated from God. It begins in our conscience where we begin to be isolated from God. And it moves into a condemnation, self-condemnation as well as condemnations from others. And that leads to our isolation. Huckleberry Finn made the statement that conscience takes up more room than all the rest of a person's insides. Well, that conscience begins to eat on us. And it begins to take up more room than our insides. Then there is that rebellion that he had. Verses 3 and 4 said he broke all restraints. He wanted to run his own life. When we begin to isolate ourselves from God and from His people, we begin to want to break all restraints, whatever they are, whatever the social or the moral or or religious restraints are, that we want to free ourselves from those things. Well, and then there was that restlessness. Look at verse 5. There was no peace within. The Bible says, day and night among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. There was no peace. There was that restlessness. We see that. We see it in ourselves when we, when we try to break the bonds of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, when we try to break free from God and His restraints. We see that, that lack of peace and that restlessness that begins to disturb us in our own lives. And then fourthly there was that self-destruction. Hated himself. He, uh, maybe he overate, maybe overindulged, maybe overworked, maybe he did any of these other things in the beginning. But it, it became to be a self-loathing kind of thing. Where not only in his isolation, but living in these tombs, the madman that he was, possessed by evil spirits, no one wanted anything to do with him. Well, Therefore, he became a problem to others. Now, in addition to his isolation, secondly, there was confrontation. I want you to see in verse 7. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? He came face to face with Jesus. You want to see the power of Jesus Christ. Everyone in that region shied away from him. They talked about him. The family wouldn't have anything to do with him. The relatives wanted nothing to do with him. No one. You can imagine the word of caution to the children. Don't go near the tombs. Don't come close to this man. He's crazy. He will harm you. He's harmed himself. He has no regard for life whatsoever. And so... There's this confrontation with Jesus. Jesus says, what is your name? Legion, which conjures up the image of the Roman legion of 6,000 soldiers that were already stationed in that area. For we are many. And so, here he is. Satan's influences on him. Well, he wanted to kill Jesus. He came rushing toward Jesus, and when he found the power of Jesus, he stopped short. Now, it's kind of interesting here. The Bible says a lot of people don't believe in in demons anymore. We've become too sophisticated. We're too educated. We've risen above uh, any kind of reference whatsoever to demonic activity. Uh, You haven't been on mission trips with me, I promise you. 
if you feel that way. Because demonic activity is very real. And where he wanted to attack Jesus and fell short, today he attacks the church. He attacks the family. He attacks these institutions that Jesus Christ himself has created to be formed in his own image. And he will attack us. So, those of us that believe in the satanic oppression of people and and satanic influences throughout the world, and now that we've come out of that 75th anniversary of D-Day, how can you not believe the satanic influence of the German forces as they were marching through Europe? The satanic influence in Asia and the Pacific, it was there. It was dark and it was black and there was no regard whatsoever for life or limb. And so we see that and we see this kind of thing. The Bible tells us in James 2.19, you say you believe in one God, you do well. Well, good for you. And then he continues by saying, the demons also believe and tremble. So the fact that you believe in the existence of God is not enough. Because Satan believes in the existence of God. But he's not going to follow Him by faith. So just because you believe that God exists and you think that's sufficient for your own salvation, it's not. Satan and his minions aren't saved either. So you say you believe in one God? Big deal. Satan also believes. The demons also believe and tremble. Now, in Matthew's account, in the 8th chapter of Matthew, he adds these words to the demon's approach. Jesus Christ, thou Son of God, hast thou come to torment us before the time. In other words, Satan and his minions, his followers, all know that their end is absolutely guaranteed. And they know there's going to be a lake of fire. And they know there's going to be eternal torment. They know that there's an end to their activity. And so they're asking Jesus, are you going to just torment us or torture us before the ultimate judgment? So, here's where Jesus responds. They said, what do you want, Jesus, basically? Jesus' response, He only wants us. Now, In addition to confrontation, there's that liberation. You know what I found interesting in this? Is that when Jesus allowed the demons to go into the pigs, keep in mind that the pigs were being celebrated as sacrificial offerings to their own gods. The boar's head was the symbol of Roman authority. So Jesus is saying in that action, I am more powerful than the Roman Empire. I am more powerful than your pagan gods. I am more powerful than anything that you can comprehend. He's also saying to them that the fact that the demons wanted to go into pigs should prove to you that Satan thinks humans and pigs are on an equal plane. There's no difference. I can inhabit one, Satan says, as well as I can inhabit the other. There's no difference to him. They're the same thing. So, 
those of us that allow Satan's wiles or his temptations to overcome us, remember that. He sees you the same way as he sees a pig and then begins to make us pigs in our behavior once he has our full attention. So we recognize Jesus for who he is and we follow him, we experience liberation. Salvation becomes wholeness. He Look at him in verse 15. He's clothed and in his right mind. Here's a man who was naked running through the cemetery, through the tombs, and now is sitting there in his right mind, probably having a conversation with the disciples. Can you imagine? This guy who was ranting and raving and howling at the tombs, sitting there fully dressed, Wearing a three-piece suit, tie, <laughs> nice shoes, talking to the disciples, maybe having tea, coffee. You see the picture? When Jesus comes in, sometimes it's a 180-degree change in your life. Sometimes this, this salvation that's whole for us puts us in our right minds. It puts us in that, that right frame of mind where we can begin to see things in a way that the Lord God sees them. It, it is self-control. And relationships begin to be restored in our family, our friends, our church family. Wow. But Jesus re- disturbs our lifestyles. Verses 16 and 17. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened. Well, they ran. 2,000 pigs is no small herd. And they all drown in the lake because of the superiority of Jesus over this God, their gods, their sacrifices, their pagan worship, their belief. Well, one of the interesting things I find here is that as he is sitting in his right mind, the people come back and they look at Jesus and they look at this man who has been such an animal in his behavior. He has howled at night. He scares the children. His family's afraid of him. Nobody wants to come near him. He does not only harm to himself, but would do harm to anybody. This man, the legend has spread throughout the Decapolis about this man. Everybody in that league of ten cities knows about him. So they come from the town and they see him sitting there, fully dressed, speaking in his right mind, and carrying on a normal conversation with the disciples. I'm sure his family probably rushed out as well. Can you imagine if he was married, his wife came out? She stood at the edge, tears rolling down her cheeks, wondering, can this really be true? You ever had a family member that was involved in drugs or alcohol abuse or any other kind of abuse? And you see them sober, cleaned up, all the difference in the world. And when Jesus comes into that person, the difference becomes stark. And what does it do to those who are in their meetings? What does it do to those who were once involved in their activity? It scares them. Because the power of God was so evident on that day the townspeople came out and saw this scene and it said it scared them 
and they asked Jesus to leave. The people began to plead with Jesus, leave the region. And Jesus was getting in the boat. The man came to him and said, and begged that he could go with them. Jesus did not let him go. He said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. Well, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, the League of Ten Cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. You think? Wow. Just imagine. He's fully dressed. He's in his right mind. His hair's cut. His beard's trimmed. He looks good. He's got this GQ look about him. And he's going to these places saying, you may not remember me. You're who? You're the man in the tombs? Let me tell you what happened. All Jesus says to him, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. I don't know why we make so much out of giving a witness to somebody, being a witness to others, sharing our testimony with others. It scares most of us to death to even think we're going to do that. Jesus said, just tell them what the Lord's done for you. That's all. The blind man, I once was blind, but now I see. That's all I know. And Jesus is the one that did it. Tell them. Now isn't it interesting that the missionary that Jesus sent back into the Gentile region was a formerly demon-possessed man? He lived there. I know David Nelms last week talked about taking people from their own culture and starting churches within their villages. There you go. Church planner, number one. Now, I want to give you a little aside here. If you will flip over chapter 6, verse 53. Now these people are begging Jesus to leave. Please leave. Now go over chapter 6, verse 53. When they had crossed over again another time, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. This is where Jesus is right now. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. And what were they doing? Were they throwing stones at Him? Did they ask Him to leave? Did they ask Him to get back in the boat and take off? They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard He was. Wherever He went, in the villages, towns, or countrysides, they placed sick in the marketplaces. They begged Him to let them touch Him, even the edge of His cloak, and all who touched Him were healed. Whoa, is that a different welcoming party? Now no longer do I have a crazed demoniac coming down out of the tombs to visit our our boatload of disciples, now we've got people coming out from all ten cities coming in as Jesus goes into this Gentile, non-Jewish area. Wow, again. And it's all the difference in the world. Why do you think that's the case? Because one man was willing to share with the villages what Jesus had done. For him. I'm going to tell you my final word here. 
is that there's no such thing as a, the other side with Jesus. There is no one he is, he is afraid to confront. No one who has more power than Jesus, including Satan and all of his forces. Jesus is willing to go to the other side. You and I are looking at, at Jesus and saying, you know, Jesus, I thought you were on our side. We say that about a lot of things. We say that as Americans. We say that as Baptists. We say that as Christians. God, you're on our side. Jesus said, there's no our side. I'm the God of everything. It's all mine. And I, wherever I go, I will be preeminent. Amen. So hear this carefully. Don't ever think that you're on the other side when it comes to knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because He is here this morning. No matter what you've done, no matter what your background is, no matter what your family surroundings, I don't care about your police log or, or any of these other things, Jesus is going to confront you because He goes to the other side. Because there is no other side in his mind. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior today? Have you trusted him as your, as your personal Lord and Savior? He's here this morning. He's offering himself to you. You may feel like you're on the other side. You come in with all this group of worshipers and you're thinking, I'm not a part of this group. I'm in that other side category. Well, come to Jesus. Because there's no other side with him. Secondly, maybe, you've never maybe you have trusted Jesus, but you've never followed Him in baptism by immersion or public profession of faith. Maybe you're looking for a church home. This is your place right here. I don't know of any greater place to serve the Lord than Trinity Baptist Church. Maybe you're in that process where there's a spirit of rededication that's building up in your heart. You can pray in the pew or you can come here and I'll pray with me about whatever the Lord has placed on your heart. You come. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we just praise you for who you are this day. I just ask you this morning, take these decisions, use them for your glory. May you be honored and glorified above all things, Lord. We ask this in your name. Thank you, thank you for those who are coming this morning. For it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.